All right, welcome back to Casual Disasters. This is episode five. I have Jackie on today, a local mental health therapist, and you're a weightlifter, wine pouring <laughs> extraordinaire, um, and now going to be an author. And have ri- written a book, or I wrote a book. Um, I'm working on the publishing part, which is really hard. Come to find out, it's not this like fluid process. It's yeah, a lot, lot to do. So working on that, I've had several rejections already, um, but I wrote a book. That's huge. Mm-hmm. I want to yeah unpack all of that today because I've never written a book, and I, that process of being in Spokane, I'm always like, how do people become authors here? Um, but also, I found out something that's really cool in this library. Are you aware of this like writing center here? With, no. This would be huge for what you're doing. She's a local author and has written several books. I can't think of her name right now, but um, she was on Lilac City Live, that um, kind of talk show that's hosted in the library. And she specifically um, was like presenting or whatever, one of the talk people that night. And she has written books. And then she like runs this part of the library where it's like a resource for anyone. You can sign up to have time with her. And she helps potential writers, authors in Spokane, like through that process. That would be awesome. I could probably use help on figuring out like the whole business end of writing is not the part that I was prepared for. I was prepared to do the writing part and even that was really hard. But publishing is like, it's the business part, the part that they want to know you're sellable. And so it's not as easy as like, I wrote a book and now I want it published. (laughs) Yeah. I, yeah, I've had a couple of friends write books and I've been curious about that. Like, how do you even get this published? And do you just, is it like music industry where you're like putting out information to editors or publishers and being like, I want this book out? There's a couple different ways you can go about it. So I've taken a couple of publishing seminars at this point because I'm like, what, what am I doing? Um, so traditional publishing is kind of the way I'd prefer to go you do have to find an agent and once an agent decides like, yes, this book is marketable. I think I can get this sold to a publishing company. They're kind of the liaison between then you're, you're great. You're golden, but it takes a lot of like pitching and writing to them, persuading them that your book is needed on the market. You also have to prove that you have a solid social media following. And, um, that has become a really big thing now that social media is, is a thing friend of mine published a book, uh, his second book, and I asked him how he got his book published or how he got picked up. He took, told me it took him seven years of bolstering up his social media and then an agent picked him up. And I was like, seven years? My God. Um, So (laughs) that's so long. That's a long time to go without like having anything happen. But it, it is the business part. And once a publisher picks you up, then they like do everything. They'll give you an editor. They, they'll do all the marketing part of it. They'll design your cover and your font and how, and and then get the book out there. Um, self publishing is a totally different thing. It's you do all of that work. So you would need to hire your own editor. You would design your own cover. You would purchase like, you know, the little like code on the back of the book with the ISBN number. Yeah. You purchase that. You purchase your right to the library of Congress. Like, all of it and you you pick the size you want your book to be how many pages 
and you market everything on your own. So you can do it. it it's People do it all the time. They'll self-publish their books. But I would love to get picked up by a traditional pub- publishing company and just go that route because that's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, one of my friends here, Scott Leeds, just um, had or got picked up to write like a series of books by a um, publishing company. And uh, I swear he's been, when you said seven years, I'm like, I think it's been even longer. Like that process, like just getting even the interest in him as a writer. Right. Like unless you have some kind of like clout or you're connected to somebody that is an author um, that can really promote your stuff, like they want to know, like who's going to promote your stuff for you. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge right now. I want to hear about what you're writing about. So my book is about, it's a, I kind of call it like a journalistic memoir because I interview a lot of other folks in the process of writing about it because it's not just an exclusive story to my own journey. Like there were many of us that did what we call a discipleship school. And this was like something that started back in the eighties. They churches, evangelical churches in particular started hosting and creating discipleship programs that were meant for young adults, 18 to 25. So this was meant to be like what they would call your launching pad for the rest of your life. Um, The way that you're going to get solid in your faith before you go out into the world. Uh, It was really meant to kind of like incubate you a little bit in your religious journey. And the hope was that like, then you wouldn't lose your faith if you went to college afterwards, uh, for instance. So it anymore I kind of see it as like an indoctrination school Um, but at the time I thought it was going to be really really rewarding and I was there too long and ended up really harmed by the whole thing so my book is about my whole journey through that how I got there why I got there what happened in the program what happened to others and then my deconstruction and healing journey and it took a long time to work through all of it but what ages were you? I was 20 when I went into the program, okay. and then I left at 25. And what were you doing in the program? Like, what was, I don't know, I'm so curious about that. So Master's Commission is what it was called. Uh, it had, it was a program I was familiar with. They had come to my home church. Um, I'd seen these young adults doing their, like, ministry tours, and <coughs> they would, like, dance and do dramas and skits and um, sing and whatever else. And I thought it was kind of cool. Um but I really wanted to go to college. Like, that was the thing I wanted to do. What ended up happening was my parents got divorced right before my senior year. And I just felt really lost. And it was a really hard, hard divorce. And there were five of us kids, six, six of us. I have six, five siblings, six children uh. all together. <laughs> um, everybody just kind of splintered. And I was the oldest. And so I just, like, bailed and got out. And then my high school boyfriend and I of two years broke up and I was just so devastated. And it was a really ripe time for me to get picked up by the program. And when I had initially been approached about doing the program, I was not yet ready to commit to something like that. I was like, oh, there's a lot of rules. It's pretty strict. Um, I don't think I want to give that much of my life to a program. And then everything fell apart and I just was like, well, I guess I'll go do this program. I don't know what to do now. I'm not in college. My parents aren't helping with anything because they're just broken and dealing with their own lives. My high school boyfriend left me. <laughs> like, I am alone. And I think that was a big part of it was I just felt really alone. 
And were you hoping to be a minister, like a female pastor of sorts? No. Um, I had always been told I would be a great pastor's wife, but nothing <laughs> about that like appealed You're to like, me. Let me go to this program <laughs> so I can <laughs> find my future husband. Oh, uh, there was a lot of that too. A lot of people did find their their spouse um, through the program. I thank God did not find somebody in my program. They would have been all wrong for me um, in the long haul. Like, I just, I'm not going to be the quiet, mousy, stay-at-home mom that many pastors want their wives to be. And and yet, I did this program that was, like, trying really hard to emphasize that kind of role. Yeah. Ugh. That would be really, really difficult. Oh, it's so gross when I think about it now, because that's <laughs> just not my life. Yeah, I was like, I don't even know the depth of your relationship currently, but... You guys just don't give me that vibe. <laughs> no, Oscar did not grow up in the church like I did. So a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, he's like, what the fuck? And am I allowed to swear on oh, this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's explicit. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, and it was helpful to hear his perspective being on the outside, like seeing somebody be like, that is messed up. Um, that really helped me kind of like step back and be like, isn't it weird? I think about this a lot, like gaslighting in general or being, I don't know, just totally wrapped up in something. It could be not even religion, but just like, oh, wait, this isn't normal. Like, I thought everyone just felt like this. <laughs> like, exactly. Like, even, yeah. And religious gaslighting is like a totally different beast because it feels so right when you're in it like, so righteous yes it feels like god is saying this or your leader is and how dare you question they're allowed to gaslight you you know to keep you on the straight and narrow and oh like the things i had to unwind from like and just get out of my system after a program like that and then just church in general there was a lot of things that were kind of embedded between the two but the program itself had a lot of weird gaslighting things that took me a long time to shake off yeah, I, I constantly, and I think that was kind of our connection talking about this, like gr growing up in the Catholic church, uh, like that was so like unwinding that, like realizing a lot of that gaslighting that occurred. I didn't really, I'm still like unpacking that, I think. Oh, I'm sure you are. Im implicit biases I have or like internalized, you know, the jokes of Catholic guilt. Um, yeah. You know, those pieces that you're like, oh, this is. That's what this is, this inner dialogue of I'm bad. Yes. And I deserve punishment. All the time. Yeah. Like, it's almost like t bad in the evangelical world or in maybe the Catholic world. Like, if you're not struggling with something, like, there was something wrong if you weren't struggling with something or if you weren't working on being better. Like, if, if you weren't somehow broken enough. <laughs> I've been telling my friends this is, like, kind of like this, but... Like, I'm like, at what point are we not working on something? Sometimes it's exhausting, just constantly, like, I mean, we see this as therapists, too. Um, All the time. With clients, like, just being like, yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's like, I've even tapped out of therapy currently. Just like, I want to go utilize the skills I've learned in this and not mm -hmm. continue to just, I don't know. Yeah, I think sometimes we need to not be working on stuff all the time. <laughs> we need breaks from that. And uh, there's something about just, being in the good too, which is something I'm discovering kind of right now in my life is just enjoying being in a good place and not being in a high stress 
spot in my life or where there's lots of drama, like being calm is like a relatively new thing for me. And it's, it's been really hard to get used to. Yeah. And yet so many other people who have not had a lot of religious trauma don't deal with that and have learned how to manage that. And here I am at 40 learning for the first time what it's like to just be calm. And it's wonderful. I can super relate to that. It, for me, it's been like cutting people out. I don't know if that's like mm-hmm. been a thing, which is hard. Really hard. As a helping professional, I wonder like if you have that. Absolutely. I had a um, really hard year in 2022. Lots of things happened. And it was just awful. And I went to a therapist retreat and we were talking about late fees of all things. Somebody was mentioning that like <laughs> they clients. really struggle with enforcing their late fee. And Bethany, the camp host, she was like, you better charge your late fee. That's a way you care for yourself. Like if you can't, if you don't charge that late fee, you might not be able to go to that doctor's appointment that you needed to go to. Maybe you needed to go to dinner with your partner to connect. Maybe there was a vacation that you've been planning for and now like you're going to be short, like charge your late fees. This is all about self-care. And then I just had this epiphany about self-care and I, you know, as a therapist, I thought I understood self-care better and I really did not. And I kind of utilize self-care as kind of like a once a month, like I'm going to go get a massage. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go out with the girls. But I realized actually self-care has to be about my whole life, everything, the way I structure my schedule, where my office is and how my office feels, the people that I spend time with in my everyday life, um, what, how I care for my body. And not in like a weird diety culture way, but just like a, just how I take care of my body in healthy ways. And in every way I've had to figure out like what is self-care. And one of those ways was like eliminating some friendships and some family relationships that just brought a lot of turmoil to my life. And was it during that period of time then, like in 2022, that you were like going through a hard time and then also realizing that self-care piece of like eliminating yeah it like started happening in in smaller ways but like not all at once it was there wasn't anyone like I'm just cutting people out like you're on the chopping block everybody's gone it was just kind of over time progressively like evaluating some things I I blew up one of my own friendships and because I was oozing out pain and I was not containing that in any way and blew up a friendship but later realizing like maybe that friendship needed to go you know maybe there's a reason why I blew it up even if I felt sad about that and remorseful about the way it happened yeah but yeah over time there were some some relationships that just kind of I needed a slough off and, and it's been good yeah have you you said family too and other stuff what other stuff have you, like, cut out? Oh, so family has been really, really hard just throughout my life. Like, my mom and I have always had a pretty rough time together. Like, we just – she's got her trauma. I've got mine. But, you know, sometimes, like, you need a parent who can be a parent and not, like, appear in your – in understanding trauma in your life. And she just – she has some beliefs that are very different than my own and – We have boundaries that are different, and she did not want to honor my boundaries. And I was like, I am not willing to be boundaryless with you. Yeah. And so we haven't we haven't spoken since April of last year. So, and then my dad and I have a pretty fractured relationship. Um, 
I reported a family member to CPS and he was outraged that I would do that and cut off connection with me. So my parents have been kind of the harder ones in that like you just don't expect that your parents will be the ones that like you've got to step aside from. But I've met now having so many clients who maybe have had to be estranged from their parents. It, it makes sense in some ways. Like sometimes your parents aren't the healthiest people for you. Oh yeah. And for a lot of people, honestly, I think that can be the truth. I know that was one of the hardest things I first learned. Like I probably started going to therapy when I, well, as a child, but then again, when I went to college, like that was at the peak of one of some of my mental health like crises for myself. Like I didn't know I had ADHD, mm. anxiety, PTSD. Like none of that was like normalized or talked about. And then it like right. really surfaced. I feel like, and you know, you see that rise. I mean, that's when people get diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia, and like it's a big period of time in your early whatever early eighteen 20s. to twenties. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the biggest things that I learned in therapy was that I could say no to my mom like that was just like unheard of right it's wild when you're taught not to (laughs) yeah and it was like oh and I remember my therapist saying you could just go have coffee with her you don't even have to do these events and I was like wait what (laughs) it's like an epiphany like wait I don't have to willingly suffer okay (laughs) it it was hard when I first started I don't know about you but like it was really hard when I first started setting up boundaries with my mom it was like rage came out of her body like mm-hmm. and she interprets my boundaries as controlling and I'm like no this is an invitation to have a better relationship with me yes I'm not c- trying to control you I'm saying here's my fence around me and I can let you into that fence but if you just like trample in and decide you're gonna do what you want then we're probably not gonna hang out because you don't just get to do whatever you want and that just like was something she just could not tolerate. I don't know if, how that was for your mom, but it. There's, it's, a, I mean, there's been, oh, it's still kind of like weird. I would say this started probably when I, in my teen years, pushing back. Mm. And then it just like continued being like, this doesn't work for me. Uh, like our interactions are very volatile and like explosive and, um, but I think, honestly, as of late, though, I feel like she has done her, like, own work. Oh, good. And I think that has changed the dynamic a lot because, like, I, you know, as people who've gone to school for therapy and were, like, immersed in that kind of frame work all the time, like, I don't know. It just, you're pushed to have to do therapy on your own work. I'm not saying that all therapists yeah. have done that because that's a huge other problem. But that is a huge problem. Therapists need to go to therapy. Like, yeah, 100%. If you don't, like... I don't understand. Yeah. And because we're doing that work constantly and just immersed in it, I feel like it just changed who I was as a person forever. Of course. And, I, and you can't unsee it. Like once you're no. a therapist, you're like, oh, like the world just became so different to me. Mm-hmm. Same. I remember telling my therapist, like, mm, I could never not know what I now know about myself, can I? And she's like, no. <laughs> and. <laughs> That's hard sometimes when, like... Better or worse? Like, here yeah. I am. <laughs> like, oh, I now know this about my life, and I can't unsee it. I can't look away. Yeah. Because if I do, then it's just, like, putting myself back in that box that I was in before. But how could you just ever ignore it, you know? Like, I don't know. I'm just not an avoidant person. So for me, it was, like, 
I'm not prone typically to try to avoid the things that I, I can't see or don't want to see. Um, but a lot of folks are, so yeah, people do it, but I just, I don't know. You have to confront those parts of yourself. And I hope someday that my mom can confront the parts of herself that can be great. She could be great. Um, but the parts of her as a parent with me, they're just not great. Yeah. And I wonder too, for you, like that, the relationship to mom for them and what they have normalized, then I don't know, they kind of historically with us pass on some of the like, I don't know, behavior interaction they had with their own mom and unhealed trauma from mothers. Oh, Um, totally. I used to just be all sorts of like emotionally all over the place, but I think I just kind of learned that, that like you could just be emotionally all over the place and church, church emphasized that too. That you couldn't be. Well, or for it could me, be. in my evangelical charismatic church world, um, emotional expression was valued. Wow. It was valued. It's not Catholic. No. <laughs> At all. No. Like emotional expression was very valued because it like gave you a sense of like, um, they kind of saw it as like, you're reaching out for God. You're having this experience. Of course, you're crying every day. Like God's really working on your heart and changing you and so like there was a lot of emotionality that whether it was real or not was a totally different story Uh, yeah um but so I was allowed to have emotion which was helpful but it was just always too much and so I had to learn how to like harness that and contain it and and be responsible for my own emotional world yeah I think that's hard like that's so different than Catholicism and and growing up in my household like it was mm. either you're silent or you're explosive. Mm. Like, I feel like there was really no in-between, sa- like, for spaces. It was like, we're suppressing everything, and then we're exploding. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there was some of that. It wasn't so much silence. It was just more like, I'm mad, so somebody was reacting. Well, yeah. I don't know if it was silent necessarily, but I don't feel like there was a lot of space for, like, sadness or, like, processing through that. That's still a huge trigger for my family. That's unfortunate. And I think, I feel like the religion piece, it's interesting because my mom like converted for my father. Like she wasn't Mm. part of Catholicism growing up. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So like, it's weird that her lens of like what Catholicism looks like in the household was just so, you know, because as an adult learning it Mm -hmm. is different than like me from birth on. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's totally different. Like I think people who come into their faith later on in life will always have a different perspective than those of us who were in it from like childhood Um, because we didn't have a choice as children, you know? So like we're hearing what's offered to us as if it's the truth. Yeah. And I think if you are an adult coming into your faith later, it's like, well, there's actually a lot of other truths out there and like, it's not just this one thing. And so I think a lot of folks can like differentiate a bit differently if they've come into their faith later. Yeah, I wonder if, like, because we were, like, born into it, I'm more, like, adverse to it because I'm, like, this seems crazy and I don't want to be a part of it. We're choosing it when you know all the options, all the different avenues for religion. Like, you're making a conscious decision to mm-hmm. be a part where we didn't make that decision. No. It, and, and it kind of begs the question, like, if you've grown up in anything, like, long-term, whether it's religion or, like, a family system style um, or whatever it might be. Like, 
the question becomes to me, did you really actually have a choice if it was so formative and it was wrapped around every experience of your life? Like, I don't think it is a choice. No. I think choosing to leave is then probably the hardest thing you could ever do. Yeah. It's kind of normalized with Catholicism that you, I don't know, I feel like people just are like, we're out of here. Like a lot of my friends and it's just a lot. Well, they have that saying cafeteria Catholics, like people who just like show up on Christmas and are like picking and choosing and Roman Catholics really do not like that. They're like, no, you're fully in or you're out kind of like, but you're never out because you were baptized. So you're you're sworn in from that moment on. Like you are always Catholic. So forever you will always be, whether you choose to be or not. That's the oh, belief. That's, that's really interesting. Especially if you're confirmed. Like, confirmation is that moment, which, again, you're a child being told, like, it's like playing volleyball or, like, basketball. Like, you're signed up for this thing and you're doing it. Right. And that's what confirmation is. You're confirmed into Catholicism forever. So I guess I wonder if then, like, and this is a real big theological question, then, like, so <laughs> if you choose to quit being a Catholic, um, do you go to heaven or hell if you die? You know? I mean, their belief is that on your deathbed, you can ask, like, to be back and, like, ask for forgiveness, and you're always, you're always like, welcome in. back, essentially. Oh, how interesting. <laughs> or at least that's how it landed for me growing up. It was like, oh, okay, like, I can just denounce, be, fuck this, I'm not doing this, and then on my deathbed, so that I get to go to heaven, I will ask for God's forgiveness for not partaking in religion my whole, like, adult life. That is wild. I just feel like in any any kind of religious space where it's like you have to be part of a membership to gain entrance into a an afterlife, like that just to me feels like that's a really fragile God if he needs like your buy-in to go somewhere that we don't even know exists. Like, I don't know. I just have a lot of like weird I, I just feel like it's such a strange idea that like God would need us to believe in him. Yeah, if I think about this a lot, I don't know if like I, I go to stand up pretty regularly and someone one of my I don't know, somebody was like talking about Mary last night on stage and um I have lots of different jokes about like Mary kind of bamboozling, you know, everyone oh, possibly yeah. having an affair. This person's joke was that she was a lesbian and that like she like Joseph is really a woman wearing plaid carpenter. That's hilarious. And Jesus was like adopted. <laughs> like oh my not God, that's a, hilarious. Mine is more that she was cheating, having, you know, side hustle with men and then I mean, yeah, like convinced everyone that it was God's child, this illegitimate child. It is Jesus such a Christ. bizarre idea to think <laughs> about somebody becoming like conceived by the Holy Spirit. But it goes back to what you were saying about God being so fragile. Because the way we portray Jesus to me, like, is so wild. Like, that God and Jesus are this judgmental. They need you to submit this hard. Because really, the, that's not how it was. No. According to their book, the Bible. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I have all sorts of problems with the Bible, too. Yeah. Now, now um, like, just the more I look at it, it's like, the whole Old Testament is just about, like, genocide and, like, God giving them permission to go eradicate people groups and like colonize yeah and that's problematic to me very problematic very problematic like we see the devastation that happens with colonization and like genocide of people groups like it's 
What's terrible. happening in Palestine. Exactly. And like, it's just ironic that Israel is the one leveling all of this injustice at the folks in Gaza who are just trying to live their lives. It, it's ironic. But then there's the New Testament, which is like these stories that were written by people that didn't get published for hun- like a hundred years post Jesus. And then Paul, who wrote all these letters, and they were letters. They were not like, this is what God is telling us to do. And he told me explicitly, and you've got to do them now. These were like letters to people. And we bolster them up as if they're like, this is God's word. And I just, there's a lot of problems in that. It's like, no, it's your word. This individual man. And again, white, well, they say they're white men, but they were not. No, they were Jewish. (laughs) Yeah. These were Jewish, like, dark-skinned Arabic men. Yeah. Who were in an extremely patriarchal society. Women had zero rights. Um, This, like, Jesus was not a feminist. I just don't think that. Like, he was a Jewish man in the context of his culture. And he did not come to liberate women. And he didn't. No. So, I don't know. There's just all sorts of things when you look at it. Like, this was not a democratic person coming to save the world. No. Absolutely not. Yeah. I wondered what you thought about that, like, liberation. Or was that part of your process of, like, leaving your religion? Or, I don't even know. Did you leave your religion before I, I say did. that? I did. Yes, <laughs> I did end up leaving Christianity. Um Liberation is really interesting. Like, I I like that idea. Like, I know there's the idea of, like, liberation theology that, um, I think that's a Catholic thing that happened down in, like, Central and, Central America and Mexico. Um, There are folks that really believe in, like, faith as it relates to the suffering of other people. And I read a book about that, like, somewhere along the way in my journey and just thought that was really beautiful to connect a God who, who will show up for people in the midst of their suffering. Um, that I thought was lovely, but that is not the whole of how people believe, unfortunately. So liberation for me, I guess, obviously like this is in my white evangelical context. And so liberation as a white person is just a different thing. Um, so I guess, yeah. Do you like want to know the story of how I left? Yeah. All right. So I had gotten kicked out of my church, the one where I did the program. Uh, in 2011 and um, it was kind of wild like the senior pastor sat down with me and was like we believe God is unwinding your identity from victory faith and I just I kind of like cocked my head back and I was like oh he's kicking me out he's not going to say it explicitly but that's exactly what he's doing it just planting enough doubt that I was allowed to be there anymore and I was like well what if I want to stay And he said, well, we'll have to do a lot of damage control. And I'm like, damage control? Like, all I did was set up boundaries, and none of that was received well. And it was over stupid shit. Like, I wanted to date instead of do traditional courtship. I wanted the right to go out and drink because I was an adult with my friends and not have that questioned. I wanted to be able to, like, do whatever I wanted and believe the things I wanted to believe and question and and just kind of engage the world in a different way. And that was not okay. Um, So they kicked me out. And I I was pretty devastated. After that, it was kind of like, how can that happen? How can a faith community that says, we're your family, like we're in covenant relationship with you, how can they suddenly turn around and ask you to leave and have nothing to do with you ever again? Like I lost all of my friends, all the people that I went to church with, nobody 
Nobody sought me out. Nobody. It took three years, I think, for somebody to even come to me and say, what happened? And I was like, are you kidding me? It just was so painful and so hurtful. So I had gone through my parents' divorce. I had that breakup with my high school boyfriend. I did the program for five years. And then a few years later, they asked me to leave. And it was just like loss after loss after loss. So from there, all my beliefs were out on the table. I was, I was like, I got to look at all of this. I got to examine and see what was just absolute bullshit and what was like actually something I believe in. Uh, so I started doing that. I left that church and then I kind of dabbled in a couple other churches for a little while. And I started just like, when I would go, I would eventually like have like almost like panic attacks going to church. Something in me was just like, it just didn't feel okay. And I could not put my finger on it at that time what that was because I didn't know what a panic attack was. Oh wow! I just knew like my body was having a reaction <clears throat> that felt really weird and like I'd get really hot or I would get like clammy or I would... I just felt like I needed to run away and felt trapped. Um, and nothing had actually changed except I had left that one church and I was at a different one. Um, from there, I ended up at grad school in Seattle and it was a really progressive evangelical school. So they had like a Masters of Divinity program for people who wanted to be pastors and then a counseling psychology program. And it was the most different experience I had ever had in my life. Um, they just saw things differently. Even if they were unapologetically Christian, they invited doubt, which was something I'd never experienced before. People saying like, okay, well, let's talk about it. Like, and at the end of it, if I was like, yeah, I just don't believe that. And they were like, okay. And just continued to be my friend after. And that was just wild to me that I could still be received and, and people could still like me even if I didn't agree with them, even if I didn't believe the same things. And, and then I got exposed to different ways of believing things even. And it was really like, ironically, the New Testament professor that was doing uh, her course on um, Jesus. And she had us read a book called The Misunderstood Jew. And it was all about the Jewishness of Jesus and how he was a product of his culture. And I was like, it was kind of just like, after all this stuff, I realized like American evangelical Christianity is fraudulent. And I cannot participate any longer in a system that has brought me so much harm, so many others harm, that is inconsistent, that is not lining up with what they say they believe, uh, where there's too much hypocrisy, where there's abuses of leadership and power. All of it to me just was like, I, I can't. I can't do it anymore. And so I just, I chose to leave. And I was really scared that like I would feel some kind of dread or like lightning would come from the sky. Like I was really afraid that if I was like, I am not a Christian anymore that like something would happen and then nothing happened and I actually just felt better and so that's kind of it that's kind of what happened in, in a nutshell and then you left it though completely mm -hmm. yep so I no longer identify as a Christian I just am me I would say maybe more agnostic like I wouldn't say I'm an atheist I I don't know what what or if there's any one thing out there but um I do believe in energy. I believe like all of us are energy. The world is energy. And when we die, our energy just goes back into the earth. And so it's as far as I've gotten as far as like, I guess a new belief system. But I just, I just don't think I could ever believe in like a deity ever again, like an absolute authority on, on everything. That just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me either. No. Like how could, it's just presumptuous. I think that, we could 
know the full truth about what's going to happen when we die or who God is, whoever we call that to be. You know, it just is presumptuous. Like, how could we ever know that? Yeah. There's just so much about it that I think about all the time. Yeah. Like, answering to a man is uh, definitely not preferred for me either. No. Like, who says it has to be a he? Yeah. Maybe it's a they. Maybe yeah. It's... I've always seen – it's funny you say that because in my mind, there, there was no gender associated with God. No, I don't Even know. Even though who... they make him him. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just a result of, like, a patriarchal culture that identifies with their own maleness and wants a God that's male. I'm reading a really great book right now called Jesus and John Wayne. Oh. It is fascinating, and it's really, <laughs> like, talking about a lot of this, like, how the evangelical church came to want to replicate a God that looks like this very masculinized version of God. Like, he's very patriotic and, like, like he's like a war, a guy that goes to war and like I don't know it's just really interesting. Yeah, I talked a little bit about this on like my individual episode like introducing this, but I like that was probably one of my favorite parts of Catholicism was like worshiping women, mm-hmm. which isn't a lot of Christianity. Um Mary, you know, is very much worshiped. Yeah. And that's a part of Catholicism I always struggled with when I was in my evangelical world was <laughs> yeah. like, it was just like so heretical in my mind. And now I'm like, well, maybe they had an understanding of something that we didn't. Yeah. They about women. Mary as like being important. Yeah. When you think about like mother earth or women, mothers, um, bringing life onto earth, like why wouldn't the woman be the one worshiped? <laughs> right. Right. Like why, why wouldn't she be a pivotal piece of this? Like she was what, 14 years old. God, was she? Yeah. I must have blacked that out of my memory. My God, they like married <laughs> women so young. They definitely, in the children's, like, so we took religion as like a f- class every year, all religions in c- Catholic school, but that was definitely not part of the video telling us she oh, was 14. Sure. <laughs> I, I don't know where remember I learned that somewhere, but I believe lots of like Jewish women were married very soon after they had like their period. I mean, it makes sense mm-hmm. in that time. Like, why would a woman be of, like, an adult? No, there was no, like, purity culture no. kind of thing where it's like, you got to just wait till you're married to have sex. It was more like you're being given away. You don't even get a choice in who you're marrying. Good luck. <laughs> have fun with that. Yeah, 100%. So she didn't really have a choice. Like, No. I don't think she chose to marry Joseph or whoever whoever she was with. Yeah, in my mind, I don't know why I made up this story at such a young age, but I was like, oh, what? How did she get pregnant? I'm so confused. Well, it is confusing, <laughs> right? Like, God just magically came down and, like, put a baby in her belly. It's kind of like the old um, stork, like, dropping off the baby at your doorstep. Totally. <laughs> that they try to convince you these women are not having sex. Right. It's not <laughs> happening. Yeah. They are totally pure. Yeah. It's just so wrong. I think about this a lot, um, just about women in general and their sexuality, but in religion specifically, um, even this community in our jobs, like just as a woman speaking about sex or gender, like how frowned upon it is like, Oh my God, it's really hard to talk about it. Like I can't tell you how many of my clients struggle with their sexuality because they've had lots of either trauma around it or they've been told not to engage in it at all, you know. Um, 
it's sobering, like the ways women get shit on yeah. for having sexuality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's it's painful. The shame Huge. like around it and all of these things that lead us to therapy, which I believe deeply that that's the biggest like shame internalized like is what makes us mentally ill oh yeah shame is huge like our bodies have like it's interesting so like in our lives like we've got like I kind of how I frame this to clients is like we've all got our emotions kind of running on a highway and they're like going east west you know like up and down they're doing their thing I said but shame has a totally different freeway system in the body and in the brain like it's not on the same level as like your normal emotions like it has its own roundabout you get on and then there are all the signs telling you how worthless you are along the way and who you're supposed to be and who you're not and until you can find a way to get off on an exit like it's just gonna have its way with you and shame is just nasty yeah you know we see it all the time all the time even in within myself Mm-hmm. that's what I was saying with like Catholicism, that guilt or shame, the differences between guilt and shame. Um, I think what I thought was guilt is really shame um, or vice versa. Like just those words being kind of overlapping and the meanings of them. But I know what we were calling, oh, you're having Catholic guilt. It's like, no, I'm having shame. You're shaming me. I'm <laughs> like, having a shame about, response. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> to what, and with human sexuality, one thing that really bothered me about Gonzaga's, I don't what mental health program did you go to? It was called the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Oh, that's oh, that's where you got your mental health yeah. from. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It, it's a very wild place. It's it's just different. <laughs> yeah, I've never even heard of it. Oh yeah, it's pretty cool. Like there are things like most all places are gonna have their things, but it did give me a lot of room to just find myself and and then to eventually abandon the things that it weren't a part of me anymore. Yeah. I don't know how your program like approached human sexuality, but I was super disappointed in Gonzaga. How did Gonzaga structure it? Well, it's its own class. It's just like uh, once a week. I can't remember. It was a really weird, not partial credit, but it was like a, I don't know. It wasn't like our normal scheduled classes. Like it was like an add-on. Oh. And what I thought was super disappointing about it was the entire class is about relationships and marriage not about sex or human sexuality about gender or all these different things that are way more magnified now that we can talk about and see and I mean just so different than like even while I was at Gonzaga was it 2012 to 14 was when I was in my grad program uh but it it pissed me off because I was like human sexuality is such an important piece of humans like we're missing a huge piece of humans here Oh, yeah. Like, mine was, I'm trying to think back now. Mine was kind of fucked up also, if I'm honest. About. Yeah, it was like, really, and especially being a re- religious-affiliated program, like, mm-hmm. how far are they going to go into sexuality when they don't see it as normal or normalized, even though we know? At the time, like, we talked about it in just some interesting ways. Like, one of the professors there, he just has his own belief system around it. So we talked about it in ways that were important to him. And not, like, a broader theme of sexuality and, like... So his individual values and morals instead of, like, yeah. what is a, the overarching piece of human sexuality. Yeah, like, I would have loved to have talked about women's sexuality, like, transsexuality, like, LGBTQ sexuality, like, all of the ways in which a human gets to embody their sexuality 
And that was not on the table. It was much more around like, like you said, kind of like relationships, maybe not as strictly as yours was, but like, it just was not that. It was not what I thought it was going to be. Um, I think I blocked it out because I just was like, this is bullshit. Yeah, they actually had one time a human sexuality psychologist come in, like a guest speaker, but that was as deep as it ever got. And that was the most important piece of that class was that day that she came in because that was actual talking about treatment of sexuality and like healing human sexuality that have, you know been so shamed deeply into it it's all coming back to me is now. it like my, <laughs> yeah my sexuality class was it was more about like um sexuality disorders like voyeurism and exhibitionism oh, yeah. and um like kinks or no or not really not kinks, even kinks just, no it just was like the dirty parts the of that. dirty yeah. parts of it like the disordered parts. that of is it. weird gonzaga did a similar thing and they had us present and i remember i was so triggered uh, by how they framed it like that, like right. only the shame pieces of sexuality or the naughty, bad, like mm-hmm. in there. And again, based off their lens, not that it really is dirty or bad, but just the way it was framed to us was like, let's talk about the disordered parts of sexuality. There was a book we had to read in, in ours at the time. I don't, I don't know if they're doing it now, but I remember it was called female perversions. <laughs> I <it>. literally <laughs> chucked the book across the room and I was like, I'm not fucking reading this. Like, don't care. It made me so angry that like we're just gonna talk about the ways in which women are perverse in their sexuality. And I just like I'm like, who the fuck chose this book? And it was the professor that talked about sexuality in the way that was important to him. Um but yeah, like why why do we only talk about the ways in which it's unhealthy or bad, you know? Yeah, instead of like how do we normalize your experience in healthy ways? Like that connection to self or others and what that means to you and safety and consent and right. like, and just like the pleasure piece of it and the exploration of it. These are um, all things I've never had conversations around in like a more academic way. Like, so I went to private Christian school growing up and my sex ed class, I shit you not, was just don't have sex. Wait till you're married. <laughs> yeah that was it like there was no I didn't learn about STDs I didn't learn about um AIDS I didn't learn about how my my equipment worked like nothing mm-hmm. I I didn't learn about condoms um and then I get into college and I'm a little bit older at this point and then I go to grad school and we're still not talking about the ways in which sexuality is good you yeah. know so my entire experience of sexuality at least in terms of learning, has just been don't do it, just get married, and then you can explore it there. And even that, like, is not going to be talked about once you're married. No. Yeah, we're not going to talk about, like, issues that come up within your sexuality in a partnership. No, and when you have to, it's, like, really fucking awkward. You know, like, I didn't know, I, I didn't know consent was a thing, I think, probably until, probably till grad school, if I'm honest. <clears throat> I don't even know that I knew about it in the way that I do now. Mm -hmm. Like the way that even in our culture, not even just because of like being in Catholic school, but just how we talk about consent. Right. That was not on the table. Like I don't think my parents ever talked to me about consent. No. Like there was no sense of like, you don't ever have to do anything. It's just straight up. You're not having it. Yes. (laughs) Just don't do it. Like, and then they'd shame you if it was happening instead of like wanting to understand well, let's talk about what that means, you know? Yeah. There was none of that. 
I think that's one of the things that I was so drawn to when I got to, so I went to Catholic school, then I went to public high school here in Spokane. And I was so drawn to Planned Parenthood and like really partnering with them as a high schooler, like passing out condoms for them in my high school or, uh, yeah, I was just so like, I want to know about this. Like speaking of liberation, like Mm -hmm. about my body and consent, but I didn't know it was consent at that time. But like, what does that mean? Like to know my body and, uh, exploring sexuality and now as a counselor and therapist like getting to have those conversations even with students or like Spokane has been very controversial around human growth and development curriculum coming out here because now trans and queer are present in the curriculum which is super important 100 percent, it needs to be and just sex being normalized that or masturbation or whatever like is not a thing that you and I obviously experience nope and then you think about where I just wondered to this just popped in my brain, like how, because it wasn't normalized, the more likelihood that we're going to step out on partners or do things because we can't speak of it. Like right. even in relationships in a healthy way, like, I don't know, just yeah. all the things that become like, I don't know, just unsafe or bad or, or more likely because I feel like you can't talk about it. Well, and I think when you can't talk about it, it gets, you can demonize it or make it like, Somebody is other when they're doing something that you're not familiar with. And when you can other somebody and objectify them in that way, then then you're a little bit safer in your own little incubated world of what you know about sexuality. But the truth is, like, there's not one truth about how people get to experience it because all bodies are different and all bodies experience sex in different ways. And I think that was the biggest revelation that I ever experienced was that it's not just about penetration. It's about all parts of what it means to be embodied in yourself and and with another human and inviting them to do that with you you know like it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of experience yeah and I think you know largely in our community here there is a lot of othering of people when it's like well that's not what I believe about this and so we just need to not do it and it's like well why can't we just talk about it why can't we just yeah engage in a dialogue about it that's one of my biggest fears of even running this podcast as a counselor in our community uh just being like oh if you say this out loud mm-hmm. how will you be reprimanded for this instead of like hey we can talk about it we are talking about this though behind closed doors so why can't we talk about it publicly or disagree like maybe we don't see this the same and it's okay and it's okay like yeah, instead of it now we're just so divided and you can't have any like, you're dead to me. <laughs> like, we don't all have to be the same, and that can be beautiful and actually is more rich when it's not all the same. Like, if we all have different nuances and how we see things and how we want to talk about it, like, and we don't, and we still don't have to agree. Yeah. And that can be f- just fine and actually really enriching when you meet somebody where you're like, well, that, that is an interesting perspective and walk away being okay with each other. And yeah. I just don't know why we can't get there as a community, like, yeah, country, community. It's just interesting. It's like, why do well, the, the wars that are happening, like, it's just, I can see the world different than you, and it's mm-hmm. not going to harm you. No. Yeah. No, and I think people just, when they don't understand, they, they get afraid, and they like to resist. Oh, I saw it. I've seen it big time. Mm-hmm. I mean, in our job, in my job specifically in public ed, that's a very common practice, and just in our, I don't know, community, like, 
this scares me, so we're just not doing it. Yeah. Even if it's something that's beneficial to humans. Exactly. Like, fear is a really interesting tool. And so much of our world, like, we make a lot of decisions on fear. And yeah. And I think that's really tragic. Like, we shouldn't be making decisions out of fear. Like, there, there are better places we can get to and make decisions out of, like, there's a difference between making a decision out of fear and out of safety. Yeah. Those are very different. And I think we confuse them a lot. A lot. A lot. Even therapists do it. I'll watch therapists oh. who make decisions about their practices or about the clients that they work with based on either fear or safety, and, and they conflate the two often. Yeah, they and do. sometimes I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, why didn't you get more curious about this instead of just terminating with that person? And they're like, well, it freaked me out. And, I was like, well, and I'm like, well, then go to therapy and do work around that. Like, explore it. Don't just shut it down. One of the biggest things that I've been working through is safe and discomfort. Mm -hmm. Like for myself, like having trauma, going through a pretty abusive relationship and then getting trying to date. Um, when things cause discomfort, I'm, I'm immediately triggered to safety. I'm like, right. oh, this is unsafe. This is unsafe. And I'm like, is it unsafe or are you just uncomfortable? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I literally had this conversation with a client the other day. Like they have lots of chronic trauma and th we were talking about meeting new people and being friends with them and they're like oh it just like makes all my hackles go up and I said well is it that you're unsafe or that you're just uncomfortable and they like had never considered that there was a difference yeah it you really get locked in that mindset mm -hmm. especially an anxious brain PTSD like oh, wait, this is trigger. It could be triggering something, but truthfully, I'm just uncomfortable. And I mm -hmm. feel my body. You're like oh, embodiment, disembodiment stuff, like just not being attuned to our bodies. Like, cause I can be like, this is really uncomfortable for me and I am safe, exactly. you know? But like when you're so disembodied, like you're just fight, flight off the chart, like you do feel that you're like, I'm unsafe. I'm like a panic attack. Exactly. Like that exact response can happen from something so minuscule because you are not embodied and i don't think tiktok has done us any favors like <laughs> people sharing all of their stuff about their triggers and like now we have all these buzzwords and it's like oh they love it man it's really hard when a client comes in now and they're another like, expert over they're an expert of you know all the things that are psychological and i will always say they're an expert of their own journey yeah but sometimes they're bringing in language that has been fed to them through a media source and then we have to kind of unpack that. But like, it's often like, I think helping people work through trauma really has been the work of like helping them learn the difference between this is a trauma response. Yes. And this is you now understanding that that's a trauma response. And now this is just uncomfortable and yeah. they're not the same thing. And you actually can tolerate it. You can do that. Oh yeah. You don't have to run away. No. What happens if you stay? Uh, <laughs> that's they, been a huge thing for me. I'm a runner. That's like a new, that was never my like response to a trauma response to me. It was fight or like freeze mm -hmm. or no, sorry. Yeah. Fight or freeze. Now it's like, oh, I'm getting the hell out. Like, mm -hmm. I don't even want to see this. I'm done. Even when it's not actually what's happening, like it's discomfort. Mm. It's like you're uncomfortable. And you're running. Like, I wonder why that changed for you. Oh, I've been 
this happened actually last night. I like lit a dude up at the bar or at this comedy night. This I comedian, seen that. this comedian, and this, you'll love this because I was, <laughs> this comedian and I have had so many issues in the community and it, and it's only been, this was our third blow up, but our first blow up was because I wouldn't move from one seat to another. Like he wanted, I was sitting up at a bar and he wanted me to come into the crowd area and I was just like, no, thank you. Speaking of consent yeah. and I wouldn't do it. And then he was very upset that I wouldn't do it and kept pressuring me like, no, you're going to move. You're going to move. Yeah, it was. Oh, he decided to flex on you. So last night when I saw, well, then he went on a smear campaign behind my back, like telling everyone how big of a bitch I was. What? Yeah. And I could hear him and I turned around and I lost, this was the first time this was a while ago. I said, oh shit, I won't jump for the white man. The patriarchy's telling me to jump and I won't do it. So I went into fight, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've had some other weird interactions. Like he roasted me on stage, calling me a fucking bitch and stuff. Like, I wow. this is why I talked about this on my first podcast, but I didn't talk about like the reason that I avoided this. Like mm-hmm. I said, there was some people kind of coming at me totally. in that community. Um, and then this last night, literally, <laughs> um, my other friend wants us to like record it, like him and I debriefing with this person that I'm having this. Ooh, yeah, but he you'll love this because somebody threw in that I was like a therapist last night. Okay. Well, let me back up. So he does this stand up thing. He's talking about loving bitches or something on the side, like, or said something to that effect. And I said, you don't like women. You hate us. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and he got so pissed. And there it is off. folks. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. And he said, and was like, why are you saying about, take that back what you said about me? And I was like, absolutely not. Somebody hurt you. A woman must've hurt you. <laughs> and he just he just couldn't no couldn't tolerate it well you called him out like he was trying to take his pain and make it into something funny but then like you're having this terrible experience with him and he's like outright like abusive in his language and he doesn't he's talked about raping women locking them in chains on stage what the actual fuck and i said yeah and then so, so somebody brought in because they're like, he has autism. And I said, that does not excuse this behavior, friend. Yeah. Oh. I was like, even as a mental health professional, I would confront you mm-hmm. in session, wouldn't you? I mean, 100%. This, I'd yeah. Be like, well, <laughs> I'd be like, why do you think that's appropriate? Yeah, shaming women publicly or like coming for them. I don't even know where I was going with that. But essentially, like just seeing, I don't know, it's just so interesting. Well, we were talking about our like fight, flight, freeze oh, response. Yes. And then last night I went into fight. And I hadn't seen that part of me in a while. I've been a really big runner. So it's, and but I that think. that felt good. Yeah. I was like, I'm like, going to tell this guy in front of everyone, this is bullshit. And I, and I did it. I was just like, I'm not going to back down and I'm going to show this anger and frustration with this human for doing this. But also I think to your question about when that changed for me, mm. I don't know. It was relational, like partnerships. I've been a runner. I could see that, you know, like we all have our different responses. To different people and in different ways for wildly different reasons. Like, I typically go into fight um, (laughs) also. And sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes it's not. Uh, But sometimes I just straight up freeze. And I'm not really a runner, but I am more of a freezer, like where I shut down. And I can't think. And I just kind of melt into the floor. Uh, And I hate those moments. I hate it. Me too. I wondered as a therapist... Um, do you ever feel like we just have to be like perfect? Like I can't lose my shit on people or like I have to be this like, no, not anymore. 
<laughs> okay. No, I just we're just people. At the that's end what of the I'm. Day. Not, I, that's what I was trying to tell people last night. Um, afterwards, like I'm calm, cool, and collected. Mo- like when I'm doing having to co-regulate a student mm-hmm. or whatever. But in my real life, as a human being, like I'm gonna be a hundred percent. Like sometimes we lose our shit. Sometimes yeah. we. Sometimes we have fights with our partners, you know, like sometimes we're not the best versions of ourselves because we're just human beings at the end of the day. And like, as much as you have all the knowledge of something, like your body still does exactly what it perceives it needs to do when it feels threatened or unsafe, you know? Yeah. And that takes a lot of training to like constantly be okay all the time. Like, I just, I don't know that like that's possible. Like that's just not human if we were always put together and I'm just not of the persuasion that like I need to be anybody other than myself anymore like I can be professional but at the end of the day like the work we do is very relational and there are going to be bumps even in that and so I don't know what is professionalism as a therapist and I I don't know and in other contexts I'm just going to live my life this is actually a perfect segue to like I always have the guests say like words of I don't know, wisdom or like, cause you kind of just said it, like just being nobody but yourself. Mm-hmm. But what would you kind of wish for the Spokane community or? Oh, I wish a lot of things for the Spokane community. I, I wish Spokane was not so polarizing. I wish we could have more conversations, more dialogue, more, uh, I wish people would not be so ugly at times towards each other. Um, Man, there's a lot that I wish for Spokane. But I think when I think about the community of Spokane as a whole, we're a highly religious community. um, And within that, there are some nuances. Um, But yeah, I just wish we could come to the table with more humanity towards one another. And just to say, like, we have some disagreements about how we see the development of Spokane how education should go, how business should go, and can we respect all points of view? Whether or not I like them. Yeah. I think that's a great way to end the episode because I think that is kind of like why, I guess, this podcast exists now for me is just hearing from people in Spokane who have varying opinions or differing from me. I haven't had anyone really like oppositional of me yet on here, but I think about that, like differing... But all of us are different. All of us are different, and I think that can be beautiful. But, you know, if you never get there and you're just an echo chamber in your own little world, like, you'll never have another opportunity to have a different perspective. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was awesome to, like, get to know you deeper than just that radio bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Our, <laughs> Which our, is our favorite. Our radio bar conversations. Yes. Um, and also I want to plug your Instagram and your social so that like, you know, if that gets you a publisher, let's do it. It can't hurt. It can't hurt. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Jax, J-A-Q-S, 1983. Um, Facebook. I don't know what my handle is on Facebook. I just, Just your full name probably. Yeah. Just Jackie Nelson. Yeah. Uh, You can find me on there. Um, do you have a name for the book? Uh, I have a name, but I'm. I'm not You're not really, with it. Okay. It's not quite there. my favorite. Right now I'm calling it Faith Betrayed, Escaping the Cult of Discipleship. Ooh. But I'm really open to another name. I don't know. It's just. 
I like that title. Oh, well, it's good. I'm yeah, <laughs> it lands like, well. I've just been in my book so much that I'm just kind of like I'm over my own book. <laughs> but yeah, all right. Hit me up if you have questions about my book or my work as a therapist or yeah, if you just want to have a conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you and thank you, Spokane, for listening. And I'll be back soon, and you can hear the podcast on any of the major platforms. Thank you.